I'm Laura, and in this episode I'm joined by Antonia, Rueda and Jasmine for a milestone episode. This is our 50th episode, so since we're in our half century, we're revisiting our first ever topic for the podcast with a fresh perspective. So we're talking about risks, but this time we're looking at climate change and how the risks would affect construction and infrastructure, and what engineers can do about them. Antonia, what's your interest in all of this? So when I was thinking about risk, I was thinking how we kind of have to adapt uh, to a new climate as we face climate change. And also, given how we have to make so much changes, it can be quite expensive. We've got other social aspects. So it'll be interesting to see how we adapt to climate change, really. Yeah, and I guess as we go through this, we'll have some discussion about how we think that climate is likely to change and some of the challenges it might pose. Rueda, have you got anything to add to that? You're a civil engineer, right? So I guess you'll be taking the uh, the sort of, well, what could we do about our infrastructure point of view? I'm quite interested to know and learn on what will happen to the climate change. First of all, because I teach civil engineering to the new generation who would have to face all these challenges. So we need to be prepared to know what's changing so we amend our material to cope with the climate crisis. My other side here is as an engineer, I would want to know how are we amending our design and structures to cope with these changes. Mm, I like your point about teaching in the next generation of civil engineers. The climate change turbulence, I want to say, the sort of the all the uncertainty we're facing and all the extreme conditions, that's going to persist for decades, it sounds like. So it won't just be us that has to deal with this. And who knows how far into the future it could persist. Who knows how much different it would be. I imagine there are people that are doing some modelling to give us an idea, but I do wonder how certain they are about that, because there must be so many variables involved. Jasmine, I know you've got an interest from a, a sort of a sustainability and climate change point of view. So do you want to give me your take on risk and climate change? My area of research focuses a lot on impacts of climate change and what we can do to mitigate impacts to climate change from certain greenhouse gases. So for me, I think it's like really interesting to see because global temperature rises, they, they will happen. That's unavoidable. It's just like how, what the magnitude is and how that's going to impact how climates change across different parts of the world and as well as in the UK. And from there, what we need to do to our buildings and infrastructure in order to adapt to the new change in the climate. Again, it's figuring out what those uncertainties are. Yeah. And can we sort of hedge things? How much effort do we need to put in if there are sort of three different outcomes and how probable are they? Going back to our first ever episode where we talked about what a definition of risk was, it was about what is the probability of a particular outcome occurring? So risk is sort of, is a mathematical formula, is consequence times likelihood. And that gives you a number. So in the climate change modelling, do they come up with sort of, oh, there's a there's a 50% chance that we'll see rain every single day in the UK in 100 years time? Is that the sort of modelling they do? Depends on the kind, kind of modelling. So when people think of climate models, the one that springs to mind for most people be the stuff, kind of stuff that the IPCC do, as well as the Met Office. 
The IPCC, they do modelling more on a global scale as well as on a national level for different countries. They take different integrated assessment models, which will try to like do an estimate of what will happen to global temperature rises with diff- under different emission scenarios. So for example, like business as usual would be like, we don't do anything to stop or to cut down our greenhouse gas emissions. And then other scenarios would be like, okay, different levels of cuts to those emissions and they're usually done in a way to meet certain temperature goals so it's like 1.5 degrees 2 degrees for like 4.53 degrees then based on the different emission scenarios you can then try to model how the climate and the weather will change in different parts of the world there is a really big range in the different emission scenarios and how the climate and weather will change will really vary by region just in the UK, for example, like if we go for a business as usual scenario, then the um, temperature changes by 2100. It will could rise between one, uh, one to five degrees, depending on which region we, where we are in the UK. That's average temperature, right? And it already, like last year, it got really, really hot down south. Yes, summers are going to get hotter and longer. Uh, winters are also going to be, because temperatures are rising, they're going to be wetter. So we're going to see an increase in like intense rainfall, flash flooding and those kind of events. But also because uh, temperatures are, going, are, are rising, we're going to see less snowfall. And by less snowfall, I mean fewer days with snow. So we're going to set really intense periods where it puts down like meters of snow in a single day. Yeah, I mean, it could happen like because of with climate change, we're going to get more extreme weather events. So while we are likely to get fewer days with snow, like we could like have something that like what happened in the US a few weeks ago, where it's like a massive blizzard. Unlikely, but it could happen. So generally, it's going to be sort of like tropical conditions if it's going to be warmer and wetter. But then with... I wouldn't say it's going to be tropical here, but it's going to be warmer and unbearable because the UK is not uh, designed for um, temperatures above 30 degrees. So I feel like this is straying into some of the things Rueda was talking about. So I know last year when it got, did it hit, was it over 40 degrees in South UK? And like roads were melting and things were setting on fire. Yes, that happened last year in one of London airports. The runway melted and they stopped the planes going in and out. One of the reasons is the mix design for the asphalt is not for hot weather. And that change make it more difficult to predict. So we need to revise the design standards to make sure we adopt for a hotter climate. It's even like if you think of the houses in the UK and the way they build them, they're not really resilient to heat waves. I watch a lot of grand designs of Kevin MacLeod. <laughs> so I know from that that building regulations say that there has to be a certain amount of insulation and they have to be not drafty, which is very different to the sort of house that I live in, which is old and is very drafty and poorly insulated. There's that design consideration that it has to be insulated and it has to keep um, airflow down to a minimum. Is that going to be a problem for people living in them if they're in a heatwave? Yes, because you would need to consider more ventilation to get the temperature down depending if you use air condition or not but again due to the climate change uh, using air condition might not be the best solution personally i'm a supporter of, of these systems but if you think about the longer effect that they won't really solve the problem it would cause more problem in the future so having ventilation in a certain way in the building is needed to accommodate for the heat wave the other thing that i've seen in a hotter climate houses you'll have like the ceiling to be is higher 
I think also like the building materials you would think of need to be not throbbing heat. So that's something that I kind of might disagree with. What I was reading in preparation for this was, you know, the idea of net zero energy buildings. So, you know, you can balance it with generating energy as well as energy efficient design. And they were saying in some cases, depending on what materials you use, trying to make it completely passive might use more energy intensive materials than what you would have saved if you act, you know, use some active measures like air conditioning. And the benefit of air conditioning is it takes advantage of thermodynamic laws. So for like, say, one unit of electricity you put in, you get three times that amount of heating or cooling. So in that sense, it might be more beneficial to use that the only risk is a lot of that uses refrigerants, which happen to also be greenhouse gases. So, you know, there is work to have low, what we call global warming potential refrigerants. In the past, or ones that have been phased out, were 2000 GWP, uh, which is 2000 kilograms of CO2 equivalent per kilogram of refrigerant release. And now we're getting to like, you know, tens. It's an improvement that's being made. So if there is any leak, it will be better. I quite like this idea, to be honest. I, I, I did not come across this. All I came across is using other things like green, ro green roof technology to reduce the heat in the house without having to have air condition. It's quite interesting to see what different aspect of different scientists were coming with which means we're heading in the right direction at least it kind of sounds like antonio was talking about sort of emerging research that's maybe not yet made it all the way into like building regulations whereas roeda given your background in civils and your excitement about building bridges i imagine you were looking at structural materials yeah that's what i was looking at what using the technology in a smart way without hurting the environment is a quite a really good thing there are also other uh, solutions that don't require technology such as planting more trees to create natural shade and also building houses so that the glass isn't facing the south if, if you're in the northern hemisphere to reduce the amount what we call solar gain so during the day when there's sun you know it kind of traps the heat in the building instead have it facing the other way simple solutions that don't require huge amount of technology but might be just a bit more restrictive and that agrees with what i was reading about the use of reflective services does window size have an impact on like how much heat gets retained or escapes the building? Yes. Okay, so, so it's smaller windows that are better, basically better like insulation. Yes, and there's lots of types of glass to control that too. So like we, we already know about double glazing, but the type of the glass itself, you can use a different type that would reflect a bit of the heat and let in the light. See, at the minute, going back to grand designs again, it seems to be about south-facing windows so that they'll bring the heat in in the winter when you want to be minimising your heating bill, but is somehow allows the house to not be so hot in the summer, which I never quite understood, to be honest. But they always seem convinced it was the most efficient placement of a window in the current climate. I was going to say, it feels like 
like in a hundred year times will be the sudden trend for houses that point the other mm. way and have north facing windows or really small windows. We can ask a thermodynamics engineer to model it to see if it actually is true. I mean, it depends how accurate the model is. And I guess that's always the risk with modelling is how true is that to real life. Yeah, and I always feel like physicists have to make so many approximations that I always wonder. You know, they always do stuff that's like in a vacuum without any interfaces, depending on what they're modelling, obviously. I guess if you're modelling thermodynamics, you definitely have interfaces. So it'd be a pointless model otherwise. Yeah. That's why I said an engineer, not a physicist, because I feel like an engineer might might put two, might put different kinds of assumptions. Maybe not like... Maybe not a vacuum, but just maybe, I don't know. I don't know where this is going. I think you've just insulted all of our physics, all our physics listeners. Um, I have a physics background. Yeah, so if Laura says it's okay, then that means all physicists are okay with that, right? <laughs> That's definitely how this works. Sarcasm, so heavy. You have to make those, some, not necessarily approximations, put some constraints on what you're doing. Because physicists know that there are limitations to our knowledge. One of the other things you mentioned, Jasmine, to change topic completely and get away from my physicists, what you're all doing speech, was about flooding. You mentioned that it would be more likely to get flash flooding. Yeah, so that's to do with um, having just wetter winters. Yeah, so in general, like the northwest of the UK will experience more rain than like other parts, like the southeastern parts of Wales. So I feel like the northwest already gets a lot of rainfall. It's likely to get better with all like more rainy days. So it's going to get worse for me and Antonia in Manchester. Yeah, well, some parts of the southeast and like some parts of Wales are actually going to potentially going to get drier. Wow, so more extreme depending on where you live. Yeah. What can Antonia and I do about the fact that we're going to live in a floodplain potentially? The main solution is that the new build have to be built on on a high rise and using pillars to raise the level of the houses, but. I think for the current ones, from what I've seen, is having more protection measures like flood defenses and catchment areas to collect the water coming from the rain. I know like there is even few projects in Scotland that are constructing catchment areas to accommodate anticipated heavy rains in the future. So you talk about flood defences. I've already seen in the last few years where the defences they built along a river in town in the Lake District, they were completely overcome. They did their job, but there was more water than they could cope with, more water than had been predicted, I guess. So you've got to wonder, I mean, this flood defence comes up to probably probably overhead height and the river is usually like well below the pavement that you're standing on. So that is quite a volume of water and that's already quite a big structure so i think it's the other thing is just having more catchment areas and the good thing about the catchment areas you can use reuse that water to do other things with it because floods are coming and the droughts are coming at the same time so i think what we need to do is to be wise on what to do with the extra water when we get it we need to store it the problem is, is all water is wasted. I suppose if Galia, our water engineer, were here, she'd say, oh, it kind of gets recycled anyway. But then again, we've also seen droughts where towns 
Again, I think it was down in the south of England, wasn't it? Completely ran out of water. Their supply just dried up. It was pretty bad, even in London over the summer, because there was like hosepipe bans and people were banned from having like barbecues in any public spaces just because uh, there was like a, there was quite a few like fires. Yeah, and then no resource to put it out if you don't have that water. So it, it sounds like the solution to that is to build some massive pipeline somehow. I think that was a plan at one point, was to pump water from the northwest to the south. Yeah, so what we're going to do is we're going to repurpose HS2. <laughs> <laughs> or it could be concurrent, you know? Why why is it? It's not competing. It could just be at the same time. So we're going to have water going through this train tunnel as this maglev train's coming up it. That was what I used to think as a superpower would be really good, was if you could control water and ice... And, you know, the whole, like, ultimate world peace move would be to, like, bring all the water from, like, the flooded places and put it in the places with deserts and drought. That was, like, one of my, like, if you had a superpower, what would it be? And I thought, yeah, I want to be Storm from next month. <laughs> but it's an interesting paradox that I saw as well, which was um, humidity. So, as you know, when when you have hotter air, you can contain more moisture. But what we found is, even though there's like something called specific humidity, which is the content of water in air, the relative humidity, i.e. how much water is actually in the air compared to how much it could contain, the relative humidity is actually going down and not going up at the rate that we expected that the specific humidity should go, given that the whole world is warming. So that's why actually we do have less water ironically, even though we have higher sea levels. <laughs> so we have less water because it's getting more humid, is that what you said? No, so we got we should be more humid, but we're not, because the seas aren't increasing in temperature at the same rate that land is. So over land we're re- we're like drier than it should be. Ah, will that be the case in like fifty years time though, if the sea temperature does catch up? True. Maybe on the in like in the future it isn't a problem but it's a problem right now sounds like quite a complex thing to try and get your head around given i just totally misunderstood what you said the first time around my apologies i might have said it backwards as well that probably didn't help (laughs) but it's just something like something else to consider when you're thinking about the risk with climate change is not just temperature but water where it is but not just water in general but humidity of the air and then how do you manage that because that can have other impacts like you know i was thinking just this winter how wet it is and so my house is dead moldy until i found a way which was active removing actively removing air from the uh, water from the air with a dehumidifier but then i'm increasing my energy consumption you just can't win at the minute can you there are too many things that need to be improved from the sound of it yeah I mean, this is something that I just think about with climate change is we're kind of, we've changed the climate. So we're trying to balance things that were balanced before. We've knocked the balance of greenhouse gases and therefore our atmosphere. So we're moving the water from the wrong places. So we have to actively put measures to counteract what we've done. So in chemical engineering speak, you and Jasmine both have backgrounds in chemical engineering. We're we're not in equilibrium. We're not in steady state. No. No. It sounds like we were at some point. Yeah, but then we messed it up. We we decided to industrialize in a uncontrolled manner. We decided we'd burn all these fossil fuels and cut down all the trees. But you know, it's it's development. How could can we compare that to how much it's improved people's lives? 
Oh, I suppose we should also consider the impact it's had against people's well-being. It's another part of, um, if you're thinking about the risk of doing something as well, like there's what happens at a local level, and then there's what happens at a global level to like whole communities and whole ecosystems. And I can imagine when the Industrial Revolution first started creating all these problems, no one really had that holistic understanding. And it's taken an awful lot of science and enge- scientists and engineers and politicians and anthropologists and all sorts to come together to say this is what's happening yeah although having said that there was actually a scientist like back in the day who did some calculations and he did actually like find that with an increase in co2 concentration like the global temp global temperatures would increase and his what he calculated is actually quite accurate to what's happening right now so people were aware of what was happening with greenhouse gas emissions and temperature rises just that um people didn't really care (laughs) Some people were also aware of the effect of increased consumption. William Stanley Jovens had a book called The Coal Question back in 1865, which was how we make more efficient engines. And ultimately, that makes it better. So more people want to use it. So it's increased coal consumption, even though the engine might be more efficient at using coal. And that's called the rebound effect. So we kind of have done the same thing in that making things easier to use, we end up using it more. I think people, they won't be scared of something they can't see. And now we're more aware of the impact because we can see it. We can see climate change happening. It's not an anticipation or a secret anymore. It's not on paper. See, what I find a little bit odd in a way, because I've spent a lot of my career dealing with things that I can't actually see but someone told me it exists and they're a knowledgeable, smart person and they're backed up by all this evidence. So I tend to believe them. And that's how you learn, right? It's how you gain knowledge from something that's not your expertise. So how come it took up till now for people to say, oh yeah, it is actually getting warmer and wetter. I can see this happening. The climate isn't the same as it was 10 years ago. How come it's taken to that point to start listening to the people that have been saying this for over 100 years in some cases? I think we need to talk to some sociologists and psychologists for this, really. Yeah, there's there's a whole thing around like risk perception. So you can put numbers to it all you want, but ultimately the numbers don't necessarily convince people. It's more the emotive side of it. Or the motivation that they have behind it. There's the uh, inertia of uh, doing something different and what you've gotten used to. It could be also the fear factor. You know, we have quite a lot of negative communications when it comes to climate change. So no one really wants to almost deal with it because it's just a a bad time. Mm, You'd rather bury your head in the sand. Yeah, I also wonder if there's sort of almost an economic impetus because you you need to create new technologies to fix a problem that you've not yet found the solution for. And that opens the gates to companies that weren't necessarily working on something or startup companies to do something new and to... It's called disruptive technology. It's a kind of a weird buzzword because no one likes being disruptive, right? That does seem to be the trend though as well. People are saying disruptive technologies are the way to go. Yeah, almost as if people are starting to say, well, we can't keep doing what we've always done because terrible things will happen. We'll run out of resources the environment will be a complete mess so disrupting is good 
it's, it's interesting to see having started with this definition of risk as a numerical thing there are now all these i guess touchy-feely considerations <laughs> i feel like that kind of strays a little bit away from the technical sciencey stuff that we all prefer to talk about so should i bring it back <laughs> to technical sciencey stuff <laughs> i'm happy to talk about it but i just don't have anything to back it up because it's touchy-feely you don't have the evidence. Well, there is um, not circumstantial evidence. There is there is a way to do science around it. I just haven't done it. Yeah, I always think that's um, it's kind of harder science to do because it's easy to drop something ten times and measure how quickly it fell. It's less easy to measure how people feel about something. Yeah, because it depends on the people, and that's why it's hard. <laughs> and your methodology as well. It's a whole social sciences is a whole other thing that I kind of stray into a little bit. And I'm always fascinated by it, and I'm always impressed by the work that social scientists do. But the more technical thing I was going to talk about was uh, I heard about a project in the UK. It's one of the few big civil engineering projects to actually finish. I think it was. I think it finished early, and under budget, probably. That's unique. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. I might be wrong about those two, but it was definitely impressive for how successful the project was. And one of the reasons it was successful was because they used artificial intelligence to predict the weather so that they could schedule work really effectively. And that investment in artificial intelligence led to, is one of the thing, big things that led to the success of the project. So it suggests, at least on a short time scale, you can predict the weather very accurately and have good understanding of the risks. But just to recap, weather and climate are different. <laughs> yeah. That is true. I'd wonder how good the AI would be at predicting global climate. Like, I think the computer would probably explode because of all the consideration variables it would have to consider because it really just depends on, like, what the emission scenario is. <laughs> and then it's also, like, recalibrating because we're finding out new stuff about the different, like, greenhouse gas and carbon sources and sinks. So then it'd have to, like, it'd be constantly re recalibrating. So it basically it would either explode or never find a solution kind of like that computer that was built in hitchhiker's guide yeah what was that computer called deep thought you think about the rate though the ai is moving maybe in a few years it can have more insightful ideas on what will happen to the climate change how how much detail do we need because what do we what do we need it for do we want it to predict the weather or do we just want to try and get a a range of what type of parameters we should build towards so you know like with the roads what temperature should we be testing or specking speci specifying our roads to i was reading about the 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 rail tracks that buckled and that's because they're only pre-stressed to 27 degrees c for the uk i don't know what that means what's pre-stressed so it's basically with with pre-stressing the steel as you add temperature to the steel so the steel would have some residual stresses inside that would remember kind of like the expansion that happened to it at that temperature which make it resilient to the same temperature in the future so when you say it remembers it, does that mean that, so if you heat it up and then cool it down, it will shrink again, but then when it expands, when it's exposed to the same temperature, it will be able to tolerate it? Want to expand as much. Right. Okay. So when Antonio was saying they're only pre-stressed, was it 27 degrees? Yeah. So they can only really tolerate 
that is a maximum temperature and that's not enough anymore yeah so when we had like plus 30 for quite a few weeks no wonder that train's not working i think if it was 40 they measured it on the steel itself in the sun somewhere out there it would be more than 40 i was just thinking that because there's quite a lot of heat capacity in the metal right so it would it would heat up quite extremely in air temperature that would be tolerable to a human in, in Iraq, if you put an egg on the surface of the car, the car will fry the egg. Because even though the temperature is going up to 55 now, on the car is hotter than the 55 so because the steel will just absorb all of this heat and store it for a bit. So I think it's, it's, it's the same scenario if you have this rail somewhere in the middle of nowhere and you have the sun on it, so it would be above 40 if the temperature got to 40. I feel like we're going back to our thermodynamics episode about what you need to do to um, cook an egg. (laughs) 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 What what was the temperature? Can you figure it out from the egg cooking? I'm getting very distracted now by food again. (laughs) That would be a weird way of figuring out how hot things get, by figuring out if you can cook an egg or not. (laughs) Well, when you walk on the pavement there, you can feel the heat through your shoe because it's so hot. (laughs) It does make you wonder, if we're talking about the UK becoming more extreme and unpleasant, what does that mean for other nations that are already an environment that we would think of as unpleasant because we're not used to it? It's going to get more unpleasant. I can see it's possible that these places will be heading to an environment that we've never really experienced before. How do you plan for that? What sort of risks are you thinking of then? Yeah, so like some places will get like to temperatures where it's just completely going to be inhospitable for humans, but also like like with the increase of temperatures, you're going to get more rainfall. So like there's quite a few areas that are low lying that are basically just going to get completely permanently submerged. Yeah, so basically we'll have less habitable areas on the globe. As the population is increasing, which is what they currently predict. Yes, although in some countries it's going down. So we move there. What kind of climate are they going to have? You see, you need a global <laughs> picture again. This is why the AI <laughs> would always be re- recalibrating. Some countries are sinking. Yeah, technically the um, parts of the UK are sinking. The South. The South is sinking. Scotland is rising. Is it sinking or is the sea level rising? During the ice age, like the weight of the ice like pushed part of Scotland down. And like raised up the south of the UK, and because the ice has re- has gone, like the south has been slowly sinking. I think, guys, you need to move to Scotland then. So I'm confused now because we're actually we're saying that the south is sinking, but also going to have droughts. But it's just not going to have any rainfall. It could be under the sea and not have any rain. It still be in a drought. It'd just be under some salt water. It'll be more like places like parts of Bangladesh. And like other regions that are uh, that are just like very low lying, where with the increased rainfall they will just get more more flooding. Therefore, like more areas will just be like permanently submerged. Again, we're moving out to this sort of this global view and saying climate change is a global problem, and that I still can't get over this idea that the conference of the parties meetings about this. They always just seem to bicker about who's going to do what, and no one actually comes together to say we're going to solve this as the world. Yeah, I think they all need to be a one nation to solve it. Otherwise, we're doomed. <laughs> I think we have a difficulty because all of this requires money, and money makes the world go round. The difficulty with trying to make an agreement, whether it's how to build the most efficient building or reduce climate change, is just how do we get the resources for it? 
to prevent flooding in Bangladesh. A, maybe Bangladesh doesn't have the resources as much, but B, did they contribute much to climate change in the first place? So it starts becoming a political will battle. But you're also talking about having enough resources for everyone. So I guess that is part of when you're thinking about what are the risks. And then, so if you're going to do a risk management plan or a risk assessment for anything that you do in the lab, you'd think of, well, how are you going to mitigate those risks? How are you going to make things safer? And if one of those things is, well, where am I going to get um, the resources to put my safety factors into operation and you don't have them, then your risk assessment looks very different, I guess. Again, we're strayed away from uh, the technical science and engineering stuff quite a bit. Yeah. And we're talking about geopolitical forces now. So I feel like that is probably a good place to leave it. There's been a very different flavour of conversation compared to our very first episode about risk. But it's also been interesting to see how the podcast has evolved. And it's been almost two years since we did that first episode. We've sort of grown to get this like really big picture and like science engineering does this little bit of it. And then there are all these other factors to consider. I think we've done that quite a lot in a lot of these episodes. And we've sort of gone into politics and social aspects quite a lot as well. I wonder if that means we should sort of rethink about the title a little bit. Maybe that's a a good thing to feed back on if you're listening to this. Our anniversary episode comes up in February, and I think we'll be doing something a bit special for that one as well. So you can stay tuned and we'll see you next time. Bye. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.